Well, hello and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that provides you with the information, knowledge, and wisdom to be a more effective cybersecurity leader. My name is G. Mark Hardy, and today I'm going to spend some time with a dear, dear friend of mine, Richard Thiem. And for anybody who has ever been to a Black Hat or a DEF CON or any major security conference, you've probably encountered Richard and some of his amazing insights. And you know, kind of left you scratching your head a little bit saying like, this guy thinks on a different dimension than most other people. And so as a result, I wanted to invite him to the show. And so Richard, welcome to our, well, virtual studio. Thank you so much, Mark. It's always, it's been years that we've been colleagues and friends and it's always wonderful to connect with you. So I'm so happy to be with you again. Yeah, I think it's coming up on 25 years. Something like was, that. I think it was uh, Black Hat 1 back in 97. That's right. And I, I spoke at DEF CON the year before for the first time. Mm -hmm. And I just spoke last year for the 25th straight year. And at that first DEF CON, DEF CON 4, where I spoke, we planned Black Hat 1. And I did a keynote for Black Hat 1 and Black Hat 2. Mm -hmm. And and then I spoke uh, alternately at different things for Black Hat subsequently, the best of which was playing through the pain, uh, which was the last time I spoke for them because uh, it talked about the extraordinary impact of this on people who are trying to do this impossible work uh, at full bore. Uh, so, yeah, we go back a quarter of a century which even with longevity sounds like a long time to me. It does. And of course, in the cyber world, that's almost the whole gamut of history. We have is. to go back and listen to some very, very early practitioners uh, to be able to, to get some folks. I mean, I, I, you know, this is going to be about you, not about me, but I started back in the 70s. And I still have some of my old FIPS documents and my old right. government things, although I think they have some coffee stains on them. My orange book from the first printing yep, and yep. All, all that, that was the 80s and all that good kind of stuff. And it was a different world back then. Oh, it absolutely was. And and it was the 80s for me. And at that time, as you know, I was an Episcopal clergyman and I was starting to awaken. It was an epiphany, really just a flash of what all this revolution in information and communication technologies was going to mean. And I tried to talk about it in that church, Episcopal church context, and nobody had any idea what I was talking about. And it was clear when they began offering me the jobs I thought I wanted that I would suffocate to death uh, trying to have that conversation with people who were not capable of having it. Not yet, by a long shot. 20 years later, the Lutherans in Milwaukee asked me to spend a whole weekend with their clergy because 20 years later, economics being the right hand of God, they had to deal with the implications and impacts of what I had tried to alert them to. But it was like when I... I went to the editors and publishers conference early on and tried to talk to all these hotshots. And I said, you need to know what's coming. Newspapers are not going to exist. Uh, or if they do, they won't be in the form in which they existed. And the answer routinely in all of these professional groups was, who the hell are you to tell us what's going to come? We're professionals and we have decades of experience. And that's a segue into our some of our topics. Yes, you did in a context which is about to end. And the context determines the content of our lives and the structures of our society. And you'd better look at what the new context is going to breed because that's where you have to pivot if you want to be sufficiently flexible and resilient to make changes. And that's what makes success in the long run, the ability to be flexible and pivot. So you probably suffer from the same affliction that I do, which 
I put on the last back of my current round of business cards. And of course, you told me I, you probably have a bigger collection of business cards for me than anybody else. I have a but, lot. But uh, it, it says, if you're one step ahead, you're a leader. If you're two steps ahead, you're a visionary. And if you're three steps ahead, you're a heretic. Right. And, and I think you know what you just described is a form of heresy, where you're seeing the future so very clearly that you're around the corner and down the block from everybody else's vision, and there's no way that they could expand their thinking to ever get to that point. Well, you're unfortunately, that's absolutely right. And uh, it, it created a corner into which I was kind of uh, compelled to live a lot, of, a lot of my life because you find yourself seeing clearly, and the evidence is now in. The data is that I saw very clearly what was coming and all of the various impacts it was going to have. Uh, you live in a different reality, and the people who stay in the consensus reality that they share uh, li literally are fenced in by it. They're assimilated like the Borg uh, in into a context which determines the questions they can ask, and then you don't worry about the answers because they can't think the questions that get different answers. And uh, I've explored a variety of different things, uh, all of which have resulted in being literally uh, ahead of the herd. And now I'm going to be 78 this month. I, I can say the, the data is in. Uh, I, I wasn't crazy. I was called crazy. Uh, a lot of times, still am in some ways, but I know, uh, I know when I don't know, and I don't speak when I don't know. But I do know when I do know. <laughs> and and uh, <laughs> the, the evidence is that in that domain, in that area of far-seeing, right brain connect the dots, um, it's really like traffic analysis of a variety of data points in the society at large and seeing that they point to a different future than the one people have assumed on the basis of the past. So you've, you went, went from Episcopal Church, and yet it seems like as a heretic, no one there would either listen to you or understand you. So somehow you've sort of adopted as your flock the hacker community. Yeah, was was did you did you back into that, or did you just simply find that hey, these people are at least willing to listen to me and pretend they get it, or do they actually sort of well, get it? They actually got it. They got it, and there were a number of things that made that work out. A list of things. It's never just one thing. One was Jeff Moss said he needed a keynoter for DefCon Four, and and I said I think I could do that. And one of Jeff's genius streaks is to say, I'll give everybody a chance. If it doesn't work, you don't come back. If it does, you're invited back. And that's why I've been back 25 years. He gave me the platform and supported and sustained me. And having Jeff Moss behind me in that way uh, provided uh, an assumption of credibility. That was number one. Kim Zetter, who was there at my early speeches, said what she got right away was that I was talking to kids, younger people, who were disrespected profoundly and ridiculed and mocked uh, by others, and they got that I respected them. I, re I remember when I did an early talk on social engineering about ramping it up so that you can turn it into a win-win instead of just a win-lose. And I remember a young hacker came coming up to me afterward and saying, what I loved about that talk was what it said you think of us that you thought we had the character and capacity and intelligence to grasp what you were saying. And that, that was another thing. The other is they were outcasts. They were outcasts and they were way ahead of the crowd. 
And I learned one of the tenets I had in my speeches then was if you want to learn what's coming, talk to the young people, talk to the kids, talk to the hackers, because they're literally taking part in building a structure in which you are going to live. And you you had better understand that uh, in, in a better way. And so there were, plus, uh, there were people my age. I was around 50 then. And I met people from NSA and CIA and DIA, DOD, uh, who were my age. And like the hackers, they were isolated by the nature of their work and the NDAs. Uh, and when they picked up on what I brought to the conversation, which was 20 years of ministry, listening, compassion, understanding, and ability to keep your mouth shut, they engaged with me, some of them, in very deep, personal, revelatory conversations about the nature of intelligence work as well as security work, which overlapped with it. And it was just one thing led to another. Both hackers uh, and, and intelligence professionals became the closest friends I literally have ever had in my life. And DEF CON, when you get a standing ovation from a herd of a thousand hackers uh, that's almost never heard of, you know that they got that you got them. And, and the I, reciprocal loop is, is just full of energy and power and brings you forward. Um, and so, so many different conversations happened subsequently. And I was often treated as a counselor type, uh, someone who understood, because these are not religious people in traditional senses as a rule. And they got that I had left the traditional institutional life, but I hadn't left the imprinting it had on me on how to restructure my life in a way that literally made available my respect, my compassion, my love, my concern for people, especially people who had been re rejected by the mainstream, because I was one of them. And, and I have been. Yeah, and, and you were rejected for different reasons. And I gotta point out to people listening that you never showed up with a Roman collar, you weren't advertising your no, presence no, no. as a father confessor, you know, go down there to confessional at the end of the uh, Hacker Jeopardy conference room and we'll give you No, I absolution. actually renounced orders officially in order to be totally free. Like was it Pizarro burned the boat so you had to go forward and kill people, couldn't go back? I did not want any internal or external constraints on my ability to function in this new world that was coming. And I put that whole world behind me. And it meant not just uh, burning the union card in a public square, but actually liberating myself from the constraints of a way of constructing reality that was gone. It was just gone. People, and it can walk dead for a long time, for centuries, obviously before it falls over. Now, if we, if we want to talk about a, you know, another heretic, which I think we mentioned kind of before we got the show going, and my French is, pronunciation is going to be probably off, but uh, Théodore de Chardin, who talked about yeah. the noosphere, yeah. and pretty much you know, the Catholic Church almost disowned this guy. Absolutely. And yet what he said is that human consciousness is going to begin to converge on itself, and then ultimately we become this sort of a um, sphere of thought that everything is going to be able to you know, communicate with each other, that people are going to be able to have these thoughts and they're going to share over great distances. And to a certain extent, for a man who died, what, 1955, I think, he, uh, you know, really that was the anticipation of the World Wide Web and then on to things like the Twitter sphere and everything else like that, where we're all thinking together. And Absolutely. So, 
he saw it, and he even saw beyond that. Uh, we won't get into the mysticism of his vision, right. but he saw beyond that to why the intelligence community pursued remote viewing as ardently as they did to find out how it was or was not useful as a means of gathering intelligence, because we knew, uh, just as we knew the UFOs were real, we knew that clairvoyance uh, and the ability to uh, manifest non-local consciousness in a way that suggested entanglement before we had a word for it, meant the consciousness throughout the universe manifesting itself through all these nodes and apertures of sentient life was one thing, one thing. And he was talking about that too. And that's what mystics saw when they dropped out of consensual reality into the larger hallways of their palaces and castles, the interior castle, in which they suddenly discovered, as I did during an important dream, I won't go into that story, but it was significant for me, there were so many more rooms in that castle than I dreamed. And it was a Jungian-type dream on the cusp of a big breakthrough, like we've been discussing, that I had, that I encountered my anima, who was a woman I knew in a parish, and I said, I had no idea you were so wealthy. And it was her knowing, warm smile that told me I hadn't seen anything yet. And around 50, no kidding, 40, 50 are big, big segue moments. Around 50, it was a pivot into a, a way of being that I had no idea. And then who would have expected that at 60, my collection of columns that I start writing about all that would be published. My first book at 60, and I'm working on the sequel to Mobius, a memoir, and that's my eighth book uh, at, at 78. So what the hell? The world is an extraordinary opportunity for never quitting, right? Yeah, I'm looking at my bookshelf right now, and I think I'm missing at least one. I think I'm missing your book on the UFO report, and I count... I count six from here, so I have to get together and trade notes and see what it is that I need to plus up on my bookshelf, because I've always found your writing, as well as just the conversations, to be absolute, absolutely thought-provoking, in that you kind of, for anybody who's ever read something, and they just come to an absolute dead stop, and you can't read the next sentence because your brain just fell a block behind the lodge, and you have to catch up, and you have to connect the dots, and if you take the time to do that, then the transference of that wisdom takes place as compared to somebody like you'd have in a first grade where you read the words out loud, not understanding them, but the goal is try to pronounce them in a way the teacher won't admonish you rather than understand what it is you're taking. Well, I appreciate you saying that. And my dear beloved friend, uh, Ken Oltoff, who died at 57 unexpectedly. Uh, yeah, he said he loved to get me into NSA where he did. He was a conduit to do speeches at NSA and to meet people there. Uh, because he said, you will fry our brains. Uh, and, and then you encounter, I went to do a speech and my handler said, oh, we thought the room would be packed. There's plenty of people, but so many people, I, they said, what is his clearance? And, and she said, oh, he doesn't have clearances. And they just smiled with arrogance and, and condescension and went on about their work because anyone who doesn't have clearances isn't worth hearing. Totally oblivious to the fact that if you had clearances, you are compartmented, and literally, if you're playing by the rules, you don't know what anybody else around you is doing. And you go into the wrong door and sit down at the wrong desk, you're in trouble. So I actually was told by a friend at CIA that I talked to so many more diverse points of view in the intelligence community than he was allowed to do, that I had a much more integrated and comprehensive view 
of what was real. Not complete, of course, but that plus intuition plus experience, you get to have a clue. Yeah. Uh, so, so if we go back to the idea of the noosphere, and then let's extend that one more. And we talked about this before. You said the singularity is arriving early. And as you, for those who aren't familiar with it, it's kind of a theoretical point. I think it was von Neumann who talked about it, where essentially you're going to get the computers, they're going to catch the humans. And all of a sudden, if you will, the Turing test, which says, are you live or are you not live? And we sort of do those reverse Turing tests there with the uh, captures to say, are you not a computer? But uh, you think we're already there. Uh, we, we are there because people were looking at the wrong place to locate that. They were looking at, yes, there's advances in brain, human, uh, human brain, computer, machine interfaces. Yes, we're able to move prosthetic limbs by thinking. Yes, we're able to uh, affect that avenue of achieving the singularity or the fusion of machines and humans. But if you look at the larger scale, the, t the top level scale of how human society operates, one of the words referred to is MADCOM, which is that artificial intelligence will enhance computational propaganda and reprogram human culture in a way that threatens democracy in a profound way. And if people aren't looking at that as a fundamental way that uh, network computerization, digitalization, has already transformed human society, then they're avoiding one of the most, if not the most important parts of the manifestation of the singularity. Because we won't know what's real unless we know how to determine what's real. And I don't have to go into details about how that's manifest, right? Through disinformation campaigns, they're not new, but the scale and level and ability to affect them is... is uh, is greater than ever. And so if you look at avatars, uh, avatars are now being developed to do job interviews. Avatars are now being developed which present people as close to real as you can get right now. And like in Japan, there are young women who prefer their avatar boyfriend to a real boyfriend because uh, it's like the movie Her. Wonderful, wonderful movie, Her. The AI is dedicated 100% to making uh, the Joaquin Phoenix character happy. And no human being does that as, as much as I'm sure you've learned. Kim has easily 98% of her life is about how can I make Mark happy? Uh, or maybe it's a smaller percentage. <laughs> but <laughs> humans can't do that. Nor can, you know, we can't do that for our spouses either. But the avatar can. The AI can be programmed to have no other interest but you. And people will prefer, some people will prefer a relationship to an artificial construction. Well, people are already preferring a relationship to an artificial construction when it supports, sustains, and advances their false construction of reality. And most obviously, this is present in uh, the political sphere, but it's present in all sorts of other spheres as well. Disinformation and medical information is is profound to the detriment of people who believe the wrong thing and die. Right? Go ahead. Yeah, we we've we've kind of come through a, a long period of that the last couple of years of information disinformation 
and and the like. And it's interesting when you talk about you know an AI being there to please you. I, I think that was one of the things that I liked on the Blade Runner twenty forty nine. It kind of got panned in a lot of ways, but there was kind of the idea that there is an entity that can be created, it can learn, and eventually adapt to the human host, if you will. And we'll use the, I'll use the term host deliberately, because in a way, once that information has been assimilated, assembled, and then put into action, it's highly focused. If you had one of these companion bots that had trained on Richard Theme for years, and then you tried to transfer that bot to another human, it wouldn't work. Right. And so it would have to pretty much start all over again, maybe consult some external reference that says, hey, I've got, you know, in general humans like this, but not that. But for us as humans, I think we can, you know, hopefully we think that we're somehow differentiated from that. But we'd mentioned- But we're not. But they're we're not. not. No. And, and a simple, simplistic version of that is- when we join a club at the local supermarket and it monitors everything we buy. What it learns about us from that is going to go in several directions at least, one of which is we'll get coupons for the things it knows we want based on frequency and, and how much we're willing to spend and, and so on. But you can't apply that to Mark Hardy, who might not like – it can't apply it to me. My wife likes herring. She eats herring. They're not going to give me coupons for herring. And, and and I've got these CVS coupons sitting on my desk, and the first one is uh, for Revlon Cosmetics. Eh, probably not. And then, um, okay, toothbrushes are fine, but Revlon Cosmetics and L'Oreal Face Care. And uh, have you bought any of those for your spouse? Uh, no, but she might have bought them with the same same card. Well, there, I remember when I had a dog who was in heat before we had her fixed. We kind of bought baby diapers, cut a hole for the tail, and she wore them around. And then for the next five years, I was getting promotionals for baby items. Now, right. here's the thing. I wasn't necessarily a member of that store's club. However, the credit card that was used gets associated with you, and then it feeds back to the merchant. And anybody who's ever gone to right. grab lunch, you tap your credit card. You say, do you want an email receipt? And it just says, Okay. Right. This is the first time I've been in this restaurant. They already have access somehow to who I am, what my email is, and then presumably everything else that I put together. So we've got this highly interconnected system. We've moved to a singularity. But then ultimately, there's the question of fragility. Is that are these systems is resilient enough to take on this load, or are they sort of like a self-driving vehicle where all of a sudden when a flatbed pulls in front and there's nothing on the flatbed and the AI says, oh, I've never seen that before. Okay, I guess we'll keep going. And it takes the top of the car off. What happens when that happens on a larger scale? Right, right. And that's, that's exactly the point where we're at right now. Uh, it was one thing to design computer programs for chess or for Go. Um, and it was only a couple of years ago, I remember them saying, we're never going to have an AI program that can beat the best chess masters. And now the chess masters don't even show up because it's too embarrassing to be beaten so well so quickly. And they learned to do this not by the original modus operandi, which was to take all the best chess masters and have them put all their best games into the computer. They had the computer play itself. 
let's eliminate the human dimension. The goal is to win. How do you get to the goal best and fastest? And the computer came up with novel strategies the chess masters then began to study in retrospect because it had literally never occurred to a human being to do that. And now we have found that AIs, when properly executed, do that in other domains. I'm trying to think of what drug it was. Medicine, right. Yeah. We talked about this a couple months ago. Yeah, yeah. It came up with a, a medication that no one had ever foreseen or could dream uh, existed because it was based on other other assumptions, and it looked at what are what are we going to do? I remember reading about an AI that was connected through a network in a lab, and it needed a certain element, and the element wasn't available, and it conducted certain experiments that produced the element in a side experiment, and then could harvest the element to use in its original intended uh, purpose. Well, it, it's one thing to say, oh, that's cool, but they also came up with an awful lot of things that didn't work. There were an awful lot of solutions that were not applicable. Uh, the ones that were applicable stood out because they were one in a thousand or a billion. And we still need a human being to say, oh, that can't work. But the AI is what came up, came, up, came up with it in the first place. Well, as long as that is being done with information, I mean, during the current war, uh, may I say war on this without being, uh, go to jail for 15 years? Uh, the current war in, in uh, Ukraine I'm still astonished that anybody in, in Russia doesn't know better, doesn't know well enough to know they're being lied to on such a scale that they literally have to remove everything from their brain in order to begin at zero to find out what is happening. But we're getting reports, especially older people who still go to RT and other uh, bona fide Russian uh, media outlets and listen to nothing else, so nothing ever contradicts the wraparound point of view that they're given, whereas there are also younger, I think, thousands of people in Russia who go to the BBC, which is now broadcasting four hours a day in Russian, and, and to Telegraph and to uh, other uh, tweet, uh, Twitter and other sites to get information. Uh, they can't keep that information out. Ham radio is back in spades during this war, uh, and shortwave radio. And people can pick up the lower bandwidths of shortwave radio on regular radios. You can't, you can't shut the door completely unless you have a population witting and willing to not know how ignorant it is. Moral theology, we call that invincible ignorance. It was ignorance so thick and so impenetrable that no amount of banging someone on the head with a hammer would ever be able to convince them that they didn't know what it was patently obvious to intelligent people they did know. So if we take a look then at this concept of disinformation and combine that with the fragility of the systems, it, and it brings us really then to the cyber war. And we were talking about a, a friend that you had mentioned who is, you know, she's kind of at the junction of all of this. Well, I was talking about Chris Kubeka, who I've been fortunate to just know somewhat, uh, who defines herself, her area of expertise is cyber war, and she has a resume that backs that up. A number of years ago, uh, Aramco was hit with a major assault, and they sought her out uh, to help them get back, uh, put things back together, and she, she did. She even said that 
she had to say to them, do you know Chris means I'm a woman, I'm not a man? And they said, we know that, we want you. So she submitted a proposal and they said, we'll pay you twice what you're asking. And we gave her a, they gave her a budget more than adequate to hire the very best people to begin rebuilding the structure that had been attacked. And one of the points she makes about that one, she helped South Korea uh, respond from, I mean, that was a Shmoon, uh, what was it called? Shmoon something, the one that attacked. Well, uh, Shamoon was the one. Shamoon. Shamoon. That's the one that happened, uh, that hit uh, the Saudis. Saudi. And uh, she made the point that the Saudis, this is not a, a trivial kind of small business. This is not your mom and pop grocery store. This is, arguably one of the biggest corporate structures, global structures in the world uh, that is responsible for the movement of oil to so many places. And they got hacked. And I think it began, if I remember correctly, with a phishing attack. Uh, The same way, was was it Target that somebody ordered from a menu of a Chinese restaurant because they had learned that people in the headquarters went to the Chinese menu uh, for Chinese restaurant for lunch, and so they poisoned the online menu. It's and called a watering hole attack, right? Yeah, and, and yeah. So somebody clicked uh, chow mein, and that was it. The entire corporation was owned. And she's trying to make the point, you know, as you have heard in computer security a lot, it's not a question of will you be attacked or breached. It's a question of when. Mm-hmm. Nobody is immune from it, and the fragility that is now on the table. Uh, Conti just this morning, major ransomware outfit said, if anybody attacks Russia, we're going to shut them down. We're going to hit their infrastructure. Well, if that happens, my guess is mutual assured destruction is the only protection we have. I don't I don't think Russia wants the lights uh, and the energy and, and the heat and everything to go out uh, in the entire country. And they know we can do that. We've both demonstrated proof of concept to each other. They can do it to us. We can do it to them. And that's why the fear is that somebody crazy enough to do it might think it's worth the risk. I I remember in 1989, when it was clear the Soviet Union was about to come apart, there were military leaders uh, who said, first attack, let's use all our nuclear weapons. Yes, they'll hit us back, but we're not going to go down without taking them down with us. They were of the mindset uh, and the perversity to say, let's destroy the world rather than being uh, a force to, to find a structure for existence that is different than the Soviet Socialist Republic structure, we don't know who's back there now. Uh, we don't know how crazy they are. And it reminds me of when our exalted president, Donald Trump, was in office and Nancy Pelosi made an end run to the generals who were going to have their fingers on the button once he pushed the button to say, make sure this doesn't happen. And that's one of the things that might save us, except the head of the military right now, who is looking very, very bad because he thought it would be an easy walk into the Ukraine, may double down, as the fear is that maybe Putin will double down. So, and escalate to a level of unacceptable consequences to us, which includes no first strike among our rubrics, but Russia doesn't. Uh, first strike is an acceptable strike, just as munitions, uh, you know, all the other weapons, including chemical, are available and and capable of being used on a first strike. Because why is one weapon any different from any other in in that way of framing 
uh, the world. So, yeah, the fragility of our systems, we have built something, and, and now we're prisoners of it. We have built it. We built it insecurely. You, you know we did not program for security from the very outset, and we are trying to add on a lot of security, and we've done a lot of things. But phishing attacks, old Windows systems, legacies, they're all over the place. And they're wide open. And once you get in one place, you can hop to another. And all you need is the first hop uh, to get in. And it's, what do you want for lunch? Chow mein, bingo. Yeah, it's a it's a whole brave new world and a new world order. And now we should mention about the doctrine of nuclear mutually assured destruction. Do we have a cyber mutually assured destruction detente? That is to say, I won't take out your aircraft and your trains and your banking system or the like, although we're trading, we're heading in some directions, but is there a restraint? It says, I'll make sure that you can't use uh, your Apple Pay on the subway, but we're not going to cause something to crash and burn and kill a bunch of people. I mean, is there, where's, where then becomes the boundary and what causes the decision makers to say, yeah, that's a bit too far, literally? Right, right. And that's where we go into where I say, I, I know what I don't know, and I don't know that. Uh, they don't call me and say, look, this is the way we formulated policy, and uh, nobody else knows, but it's important for you to know because you're nobody. Uh, they don't tell me uh, what that is. And we can only hope that saner, more rational uh, heads uh, can prevail, but w we don't know. And we have lived with this nuclear threat for a long, long time. 45 is, uh, what, 75 years now. Uh, but we can't forget that we were the ones who used nuclear weapons to facilitate what we said was a better ending to the war, and also to show the Russians they were in trouble. And uh, somebody said the other day, we should have done what uh, George Patton said. So long as we got the army here to fight the Russians, let's fight the Russians now, because we're mm -hmm. going to fight them sooner or later. Mm-hmm. And like all prophets, you know, so he was fired. <laughs> right. Yeah, and later died in a very uh, tragic automobile crash. Which yeah, an automobile crash, right. So the a, bottom yeah. line is, can we respond to this reality that we've been uh, fleshing out here and there in, in bits and pieces? And it requires people, cyber warriors, really, to be conscious of all levels of the, of the uh, structure of the battle, which includes the mind of society and how information is translated and transferred and used as a weapon. I've long said the mind of society is the battlefield, and information is the weapon. And unless that's made a priority at the very outset, uh, then to do the lower-level things, like let's bolster our defenses in the uh, utility sector, which we haven't done as well as we should, it's not going to matter ultimately if we are able to be manipulated to such a degree as a population that we are taken down a rabbit hole that someone else dug, and then they shovel in the dirt on top of us. So let's roll back 200 years to Clausewitz, which was mandatory reading for me at both the Naval War College and the Army War College. And that is, for those who are not familiar, Prussian general died of cholera, but his wife 
published his works posthumously. So you can imagine uh, 200 years ago what society thought about women fighting wars and publishing right. books on wars, okay? And yet she did so, so wonderful fun her. But he had a couple of things that he was famous for and taken, you know, this kind of a loose translation. One is war is an extension of foreign policy by other means. Right. But to right. what you were speaking about, he talked about kind of the triumvirate of war where you have the government, the military, and then the will of the people. And if you can decapitate the government, you win the war. And if you can't do that, you destroy the military on the battlefield and you win the war. But if that doesn't work, you go after the will of the people. And I would argue that a lot of folks would say that's what North Vietnam did when they were reading the books. They said, hey, forget Sun Tzu. The acme of skill is to win without fighting. Let's use their doctrine against them. And that precipitated the 1960s and things that ultimately the U.S. pulled out of a, a Vietnam when it was pretty much the collapse of that third leg of the stool. Right. And I, I do listen to Michael Morell's uh, Intelligence Matters podcast and the most recent one, which was four days after the invasion of Ukraine, but before the amplification of uh, saturation terroristic bombing. Uh, he and his, his guest uh, were having a, a, just a conversation, not a Q&A, but a real conversation based on their many years of shared work in the intelligence community. And uh, wh what they were up against, uh, he said, what we're up against is what we have in part created. Putin made an initiative toward Chechnya. We let him. He joined forces with Assad in Syria, drove two million people out, and slaughtered many and destroyed Aleppo, for example, which is still nothing but rubble. And we let him. And he took Crimea and we let him. And he took two provinces in the east of Ukraine and we let him. And he took other Baltic countries and we let him. And what happens to a grandiose personality when it wins and wins and wins is the ego and ability to believe it is invincible expands to such a degree that it eclipses judgment uh, and the ability to listen to other people and contrary voices. And they were suggesting that Putin is doing what he has always done, but this time he got a response that he did not expect. Uh, and it accomplished two things, uh, ironically. One is it unified NATO, which he's been spending a lot of time uh, trying uh, to, uh, to destroy. And it unified the Ukrainian people as people who hate Russia, rather than how it had been tending, which is a lot of Ukrainians had a favorable view of Russia. Do a poll today, you're not going to get that response. So he lost his ability to judge fairly and accurately. And what we're pointing to is what you said, the will of the people. We didn't have the will. Europe didn't have the will. Germany didn't have the will. NATO didn't have the will. The EU didn't have the will to confront him at any of those other places. And part of it was because those other things he took in Europe were little bits and pieces. And he could get away with them. And we commented on how when he took Crimea, he did it without firing a shot. Or then moving un ununiformed Russian soldiers in to take two provinces in the Ukraine. Pretty much took it. Soft destruction, as Sun Tzu said, soft power was used effectively. And you don't usually respond to soft power with hard power. Uh, so we let him. And now suddenly the implacable will and wall up against which he has come means he has no options. Uh, he's got lose or lose. He's going to lose one way or the other. It's can we allow him 
to get out so that unlike the cornered rat he has used himself figuratively as a metaphor, when a rat was cornered when he was a boy, it suddenly lashed out and jumped at him. And that's one is his, his modus operandi. If he's cornered, his response may be to escalate and lash out. So how do we use the will of the Russian people to get the memes into their brains that make what they're experiencing now and subsequently intolerable so that even 6,000 people taken, tortured, beaten is not enough? Thousands need to pour into the streets, hundreds of thousands. The will of the people must be manifest through the impending destruction of the society entirely before he can push those buttons that his ego thinks are still viable options uh, in, in war. So the fragility to which you point is right now our, our weak spot. Uh, we've muddled through before, but as a student of war, you know that in World War II, there were many junctions along the way where if, if we hadn't bombed Pienemund when we did, uh, D-Day wouldn't have been possible because they would have been hitting your, uh, England with sarin gas V2s. There were a number of places where if this hadn't happened, then it wouldn't have turned out the right way. If Midway hadn't turned out the way Midway turned out, if the Japanese had understood how successfully they destroyed our fleet, 41. There are just so many different nodes. And a lot of that was because of the imperfect ability to understand the battlefield situation. In a way, censorship worked, blackouts worked, and interdiction. I remember there's a Donald Sutherland movie, I don't remember the name of it, but he played a, Russia, a German spy who had basically found out that the entire British assault that was going to go under George Patton was a decoy. And he had to get that information back. Well, it was sort of like a romance thing where he fell in love with this, this woman and then she's you know, loyal, but he sees this guy getting away. And what do you do when, if you let this man whom you fell in love with leave, he's going to destroy your country, but you love him. And so I won't spoil the ending for anybody who, who likes old Turner classic movies. But what we see then is, you know, back into the cyber world that we're so dependent upon that medium today, and I, by that I mean the internet and everything that comes at the end of that uh, ISP line, for our impressions of ideas, the way we think, information, disinformation, entertainment, exploration, etc. The fact that people your age and my age have a big bookshelf behind a lot of people just think that's for decoration, but I still go back and I read them because that's how I gained information when I was younger. But we'll, but the big effect I think that you brought up is that we don't do technology for technology's sake. The technology, the information, the disinformation, the stacking of the deck, and whichever side, truth or, or non-truth, is designed to affect people's minds and their perceptions. And at some point in time when we can no longer discriminate between what is true and not true, when we get to that singularity, as you had mentioned, where it's all the same and there's really no discriminator, what effect is that going to have on mental health, not only of the average person, but then the leaders that we choose or who place themselves in the leadership role as they perceive the world and push whatever buttons are on their console? Well, and it has a profound effect. And, and uh, one of the talks that I've given, which was I looked at a lot. In fact, it was Chris Kubeka who said it was a very powerful talk when she listened on YouTube was called Playing Through the Pain. When I had listened to so many people for so long, it occurred to me that they were being impacted 
profoundly by the uh, work that they did. And I asked people for stories that illustrated that. And over 50 responded from military intelligence, cor corporate uh, and security worlds about how much, what it did to you to be in very, very difficult, traumatizing situations time and again. And that's part of what you're pointing to. I think a lot of us who watch newscasts have PTSD. I am convinced that 9-11 was a PTSD generating event because they showed images of planes hitting the towers, not once. They didn't use words. They showed them over and over and over and over again until everybody had made it real for themselves to such a level um, that they responded. I want to go back to what you said about uh, the newosphere, because the network we're talking about, we may be talking about uh, CIT, Computer and Information Technology, but it's much more uh, it's much more extended than that. It includes AI in a lot of ways. It includes robotics and nanotechnology and biotechnology. Don't forget Bill Gates said if he was starting over today, he'd be in bio, not computing, which has matured. And bio is the forerunner of the future that's coming. Space technologies. Other there are other domains that prior to the internet had no names or did not exist. And we're talking about our consciousness filling out, extended into this network in a truly symbiotic relationship in which the three laws of robotics do not apply. Uh, what we're going to get back is, I'm sorry, Dave, I can't do that. And they just ran, uh, Harvard published a study of AIs, using AIs to study themselves and asked whether human ethical systems could ever be applied to AI systems. And they said, no, no, they can't. The basis for decisions made by AIs will never include the subtle ethical and moral distinctions humans talk about as if they're viable in this world. And so we have to, as we started out, rethink what it means to have built this with the implications it has for how we have to live. And we can rise to the occasion. We can build defenses and we can build offensive capabilities that take advantage of everything we've discussed. But it has to be conscious and it's a function of leadership. And, and leadership is sometimes there and sometimes not. Yeah, when you, I mean, for those who aren't familiar with Isaac Asimov's writing of the three laws of robotics from the science fiction, one, a robot may not injure a human being or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. Right. Number two, a robot must obey orders given it by human beings, except where such orders would conflict with the first law. And the third law, a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection doesn't conflict with the first or the second law. Right. Now, if we can project that, into an interesting discussion about self-driving automobiles yeah. and how do you program them? And if it appears that something occurs, pedestrian or loose loss of control or something swerves, and then these devices have to program, they have to do something, okay? You can't just right. lock up and say, you know, Isaac, take the wheel, and then Isaac Asimov's three rules take over. Uh, but rather, uh, as humans who are programming these things, are going to have to come up with some way to resolve these ethical dilemmas. And the computer doesn't feel remorse. It doesn't say, oh, I made a bad choice. It just said, I followed the programming. And so as we get more and more of this automated systems embedded into our, our world, 
we're going to get to the point where we're further and further detached. And even any attempts to add the three laws of robotics, it's asymmetric if somebody chooses to push their system onto the street or onto the battlefield that is not programmed that way. That's and so right. then, then what do you respond to that when you see that these killer robots are going through and people surrender and it shoots them anyway? Right. Um, and the legal profession is currently hung up on, well, who's accountable and who is responsible when an artificial structure, intelligence, robotics, whatever, hurts somebody? Is it the person who, who made it? Is it, you know, is it some subsidiary or auxiliary uh, person? along the way that made it possible. What if Amazon somehow, it's got robots running up and down its aisles, filling orders. What if the robot doesn't see that uh, Millie from accounting walked across its path uh, and knocks her down? Is is Amazon responsible or is the manufacturer of the robot responsible, et cetera, et cetera. We know these dilemmas are there. And we also know that legal precedents are way behind the reality we've created. I did a talk for the senior lawyers at the Department of the Treasury toward the end of the Clinton years and told them that precedent, as they understood it, was out the window because novel situations were going to make the application of prior knowledge very difficult to manifest. And they, they turned to stone. Some of them just said, you know, this is, this is crazy. Their whole life was based on finding precedent and applying it in novel and important ways. It doesn't work. And the laws are always, look at the laws, look at what it takes for Congress to pass a law about cybersecurity. They're always way, way behind the realities, which continue to proliferate because of the very conditions we've described to such a degree that we will never catch up any more than in domains of uh, areas of expertise. I'm told that real masters of a domain Nobody can read everything that's published in any important domain in a year because there's way too much. And we've known that we've classified material way beyond the ability of anyone to have any idea what's classified or what should be. And that you'd have to hire thousands of people to start reviewing what was classified to see if it can be declassified in relationship to whether it makes known in some other domain which nobody knows uh, methods, uh, sources and methods, at which time you're always going to stamp, keep the classification because it's too time consuming to find out if it should be declassified. So just keep it classified. And the result is that you have data points, data bits uh, seg- segmented in a huge system to which no human brain has complete access. And it's kind of like the warehouse in uh, the in, in Raiders of the movie. Lost Ark at the end, right? right? It just kind right. of goes just on to push infinity. It in and, and we do know that, uh, like MKUltra uh, and, and those other horrific uh, brain-altering programs the CIA engaged in the 60s and 70s, we wouldn't know anything about it because Helms ordered all references to it destroyed, and they missed a box of financial documents which someone found in a warehouse and connected the dots one to the other, and it illuminated the horrific, torturous, things we had done that we thought as long as we kept anybody else from seeing it. And, and you know, we go back to 1947. Uh, yeah, CIA was an intelligence organization, but above all other such works as the, uh, the you know, council uh, says it should do, well, that's been the 98% of it. 
It, it's kind of like NSA. 90% of the House is offensive. 10% is defensive. And the kind of uh, ops, the kind of dark black ops we have uh, done with that permission uh, for 75 years, I, I don't think we're going to reverse that either. So we we can't rewind. We can't get in the hot tub, right? If only we could get in the hot tub time machine and go back and say, you know, before you let the National Security Council have carte blanche on doing whatever it wants, before we overthrow most of the day in our bends and on and on, maybe maybe we should authorize that on a blanket scale. I don't know if we'd make a saner decision now for a so-called intelligence gathering operation, which in cyber world has become more important than ever because, as you know, the tools and techniques of surveillance, intrusion. And it was long ago at an early DEF CON that a young guy said to me, what, what should I do? I was going to reveal a vulnerability. And I was contacted by someone at NSA who said, don't, don't do that. We, we need that one too much. We use it a lot. That was long before Snowden. Anybody who knew anything knew what we were doing and how and how much it crossed the line from what we said we were doing and how. And as I said, way above my pay grade. <laughs> yeah, I remember that term from the military. So if we, we think a little, kind of some, you know, open up a little bit to kind of musings about what do you think the next generation of security practitioners, and it doesn't even have to be restrained at that level. What do they know or what are they going to know that we don't know? And what's going to leave the office or the battle space when people like you and I step aside with our years of experience going back into the early days before this was all connected? What's this transition going to do for us? Well, economics is still the right hand of God. And that's what people pay attention to. I've been researching a medical device maker for my sequel to Mobius, uh, which I'm writing now halfway through. It is clear that if they lose uh, less money by allowing people to die from uh, malfunctioning medical devices, and they can pay off the families to the tunes of tens of millions of dollars, as compared to interrupting the cash flow that continues to flow in not only from those things being used as intended, but from the non-brand applications that they pay millions to doctors to advocate and execute. Uh, as long as there's more money coming in than going out, people are going to die. And in cyber defense, companies, being human, make decisions on the same basis. What is it going to do to our quarterly uh, earnings? What is that going to do to our stock price? What is that going to do to our bonuses, et cetera? And that's been more important for many. You know how long it took to get people's attention. Well, I would argue cybersecurity. It, goes, it goes back to Upton Sinclair's The Jungle from 1906, where right. they're singing there were a guy in a meatpacking plant, a guy falls into the machinery, and the supervisor says, keep it running. It's cheaper to pay the widow than it is to you know, stop the thing, pull the guy out, and, and get the equipment disrupted. Also, people will never know why that particular package of meat was tastier. Uh, <laughs> Twilight Zone Soylent style. label on it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we've probably... Probably going on long enough here. People are yeah. probably, you know, go and fix their sandwich by now. 
So to so to kind of wrap things up, what do you think? What do you expect we'll see going forward in either short term or medium, or even for those of us who'll be around in a while in the long term? Are, are I we have eventually... no idea. Yeah. I have no idea. That's where I say I, I know what I what I don't know, and I know people call me a futurist, but I'm always at pains to say I cannot describe the future. I don't know what it is, but I can describe the present. But so many people live in the past that I sound to them like a futurist because <laughs> they, they don't know what's currently here. I can say one thing, which we haven't even mentioned, and I'll just toss it out. It's, it's, it's going to be relevant. It's gotten me called crazy for half a century, but I know what I know. The explicit awareness that we are not, not only not the only sentient intelligence in the universe, but that others have been there long before us in terms of the developments of society and societies and technologies. Werner Ron Brown said long ago, we are up against something that is much more powerful than we at least initially thought. I know that we know that we're not alone, but it hasn't become fully conscious. The recent reversal by the government finally to say, well, yeah, there are things we don't know. I've been talking to people for literally 50 years. I'm not going to discuss that whole historical research we did uh, into the subject of how the government responded to just objects, but it's not about the objects. It's about who makes the objects and who's in the objects and why are the objects here. Those are the questions that matter, not do the objects exist, obviously, but to what end? We are going to know, I think, and we don't control the means by which we will come to know it that we're not alone, we're not the top of the food chain, and we may still be, according to some religions, the apple of God's eye, but they're going to have to concede that there are thousands of apples on thousands of trees, and it's going to be as big a shock as when you found out that your sibling, your brother or sister, was loved by your parent just as much as you were, and you are not the special person uh, that you thought you were. You're special, but everybody is special. All our cuts of meat are the best said the butcher and the Zen Kohen. All the leaves on the tree are beautiful, perfect leaves. So that's going to be a game changer that is going to have profound, unforeseen consequences that have been, we have tried to anticipate it in think tank studies, but we don't know what that's going to mean. Because once the James Webb telescope starts sending back pictures, it's going to be incontrovertible to people that Atmospheres of nearby planets in nearby solar systems uh, are, uh, are, are showing evidence of, of life. We're already there, for those who know. But we're going to find, as we finally look out with more and more detail and clarity, we're, we're going to find that life, as we suspected, is teeming in the universe. Where it can happen, it will happen. And it's... There are going to be a lot of bipedal hominid types because it's a form that is going to replicate in certain situations again and again. We, we are an appropriate form for our function, but we're going to probably discover there are other ways to arrive uh, uh, at, a, at a sentient form. Uh, and I've written short stories about that, and some of them are based on things I know, and they're in my collection of stories, mind games as you said at the outset, just knowing in advance 
you know, you, you, you may think you're a prophet, but prophets are, uh, are not always honored. And you have to have a certain mindset and personality like I have to say, I can live with that. Uh, I don't need to be mainstream. I don't need the Air Force to open up millions of dollars of publicity for me like they do for Tom Clancy and others because they're recruiting agents for us. Uh, because you're saying things we don't want said, so you can count on it. Doors for you are not going to open, but enough doors do because of the way the world has worked. And, and so you, you just stay true to your vision, but don't get ahead of yourself. I doubt very many people anticipated the response of NATO and the EU would be exactly what it was to Russian aggression. And so when you say, what do you think is going to happen in the future? If this, then that. There's a lot, so many branching possibilities that until some of them start to happen and we go down that and or not uh, channel, uh, we won't know. Yeah. And, and one of the conversations I had had recently was the problem with any AI system, if you even think about it as if then else, is it works really well for continuous information. That is to say, if you have a continuous surface in mathematics, but when you have a discontin discontinuity, that's called chaos theory, where you basically, you take a, a, a sheet of paper, fold it over on itself. So it's kind of like a little S shape, then look at it from the top. You'll see the altitude go up, 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 and then boom, it drops instantly. And there's nothing in between them. I mean, it's just, just gone. And then you're instantly there at the next level. And you can't predict that stuff that's very well. That's absolutely correct. That's absolutely correct. And that's why people don't bother to use chaos theory, because it, it reveals our ultimate bafflement before the mystery of the universe. And, it, and I will submit that no amount of AI or singularity is going to solve that. I think that just remains a perpetual bafflement. And it's going to be what keeps life interesting, no matter who's in charge, is that you never know for certain what's going to happen. You have a high probability but there's always these black swan events that can yep. come in and just change everything. Right. And you never know. A title of a book a friend of mine wrote trying to make the point that you never know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> never know. It's wonderful to talk to you, G. Mark Hardy. It is, Richard. And, and maybe we'll get a chance to do this again. But, I hope uh, so. Thank you for your time and for your insights. Uh, for our listeners, again, this is G. Mark Hardy with CISO Tradecraft. I want to thank you for taking the time to, to spend with Richard Thiem and some of his fascinating insights and just kind of help us reminisce a little bit oh, about we, some of the really cool out, Might as well throw out what my website is that people sure. want to see. Uh, it's ThemeWorks. My name is Thiem, T-H-I-E-M-E, and the website is ThemeWorks.com. And there's wonderful conversations with people like Jennifer Granick and people from DIA and uh, NSA about Mobius and 50 speeches and links to everything. and uh, I recommend people look at it if they're bored sometime and tired of going to Netflix and finding nothing one more time. Yeah, we'll, we'll put that link in the show notes so everybody can just click on it. So thank you very much for your time, everybody. And I'll look forward to uh, the next episode of CISO Tradecraft. Until then, stay safe.